Hello my dear listeners and welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek. I'm your host Gardo and on today's episode we're going to be taking a look at the DC Comics universe. More specifically the characters within it and as well as the storylines. And I'm going to explain why I feel there is an ongoing battle between hope and cynicism at the heart of DC. Now, in the world of comic books, um, DC comic books is generally considered to be the other one of the big two. The big two generally being Marvel and DC. Now, between them, they are responsible for the vast majority of superhero comic books and have been since the 60s. DC originally had... Um, well, it was under National Comics in the 30s, 40s and 50s. Um, originally published some of its greatest characters, including the first ever appearance of Superman, the first superhero, Superman character. Um, this was then followed not long afterwards with, with Batman and Wonder Woman, as well as versions of The Flash, The Green Lantern, Hawkman, several other characters who have existed within DC's shared universe pretty much since then. Now, I'm a fan of DC, to a point. I, When I first got into reading comic books, it was generally the uh, Marvel comics that I got into first, um, specifically the X-Men. Um, I started reading comics in the, the mid to late 90s. The the X-Men were huge at that point. Um, I think the first comics I started reading were uh, from 1996 um, with the X-Men. So it was in the build-up to the Onslaught saga. Um, I gradually started reading Spider-Man on the tail end of the Clone Saga at the same point. Um, the Avengers and Fantastic Four I got introduced to through the, the Heroes Reborn initiative. But it wasn't until years later that I think I actually read my first DC comic books. I believe my first proper DC comic book was the storyline Hush um, in Batman, which was which came out in the early 2000s, I believe. So it was quite late into my comic reading life that I started reading DC Comics. Um, I'd obviously been aware of the characters. I mean, characters like uh, Wonder Woman, The Flash, um, Superman. You become aware of them through sort of like um, a pop culture osmosis. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd watched, for example, the Batman animated series and the Justice League series that had spun off from it, as well as Batman Beyond. So I was already a big fan of the Batman character. And I knew a lot of the other characters from that. I'd definitely seen some of their big crossover comics in libraries. Um, sort of the Justice League. Usually the Elseworlds series. Things like Justice League The Nail. Um, which is um, an Elseworlds story where... Superman isn't rescued by um, Ma and Pa Kent when he first arrives on Earth in his life pod. 
um, because their tire blows due to a nail. And I'd seen that, and I'd been aware of it. I'd also, I think I had read Marvel vs. DC, which gave me an insight into who a lot of these characters were without necessarily telling me too much about them. Marvel vs. DC, I think, is a it's a very decent series for the time, um, but it's very basic compared to some of the uh, a major crossover that came later, which was JLA Avengers, which I would heartily recommend. Um, so I, I had like a rough guide knowledge to DC comic books, but it wasn't until later that I started to read more DC comic books. And the thing I found with DC is that they've had a lot of reboots over the years. And unlike Marvel, who have kept sort of the same continuity um, for a lot of the time, some of the continuity in DC has been very muddled. I should explain, I've done an episode about canon before, and I think this is slightly different to canon. Um, continuity is more the ongoing sense of the world whereas canon is sort of what makes that world up now you know canon is sort of what counts and what doesn't whereas continuity is you know the general sense of the characters flow and the worlds flow and yeah, DC has changed that a few times for numerous reasons. But I suppose we should probably go back to the beginning. Um, DC, one of the things they became famous for in the 60s especially, was the creation of the multiverse. Now, multiverse is quite a popular term at the minute. It's being thrown around quite a lot by Marvel. Um especially off the back of um, Loki and What If. So I think we're all relatively familiar with what a multiverse is now. Whereas, um, you know, several decades ago, we might not have been beyond comic book fans. Now, as I said, DC originally started publishing comics in the 30s and the 40s. When... Now, most of the heroes, kind of, the superhero comics sort of lost trend in the 50s as a result of uh, McCarthyism, which I believe I've also spoken about before. And that led to the end, end of what is generally considered the golden age of comics. The resultant Silver Age, which started in towards sort of like the late 50s, early 60s, they saw not only the introduction of new characters, for example, Barry Allen as the Flash and Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, and also the but they also saw the resurgence of characters like Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. So these characters were now coming out for a new generation, but several people who had grown up with them or were just aware of their histories sort of contacted National Comics and said, well, you know, are these the same characters? And what DC did was they introduced what was called Earth 2. Now, Earth 2, I believe, first appears in a story of The Flash called A Flash of Two Worlds, 
or The Flash of Two Worlds, where Barry Allen meets up with the 1940s Flash, Jay Garrick, and the two of them team up in a, a crossover. And it basically established that all of the 40s DC heroes who, you know, in some cases were namesakes of the, the current um, heroes existed on a parallel world. And that parallel world included versions of Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Eventually, that led to a storyline called uh, Crisis on Two Earths, which saw the Justice League of America, comprising Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, uh, Barry Allen, Hal Jordan, um, I believe the Martian Manhunter was there, and I think a few other characters. I think Green Arrow might have been a member by that point, Black Canary, and a few others. Uh, meeting up with their counterparts, the Justice Society of America, which was comprised of these 40s heroes. So Alan Scott as the Green Lands and Jay Garrick as the Flash. Um, Hawkman, um, a different version of Superman, a different version of Batman, a different version of Wonder Woman as well. And it very clearly established that, yes, Earth 2 is where these these other heroes reside. Um, Crisis on Two Earths became popular enough that DC then repeated the formula almost yearly. Um, there was, for example, uh, Crisis on Earth X, where they um, dealt with a world where World War II was still ongoing. Um, so you had the Justice League of America fighting Nazis. There was um, Crisis on Earth 3, where it was revealed that there was a third Earth full of uh, mirror universe evil versions of the Justice League heroes. Um, even the introduction of Captain Marvel, formerly of Fawcett Comics, uh, into the DC Universe, I believe, took place in one of these crisis uh, issues. So yeah, it was established that there was a, a multiverse in the DC universe and that the characters could access it and meet their counterparts their doubles um eventually the earth 2 heroes got ongoing stories in the 60s and 70s um showing some of the changes um for example earth 2 batman died and his now adult daughter with catwoman um known as the huntress became a superhero in his stead working in gotham um, Superman in Earth 2 married Lois Lane, for example, sort of settled down. So there was some very interesting ideas. Now, the downside of this is to a casual reader, some of it did become kind of incomprehensible. And so DC was always looking for a way to try and streamline things. And it was Marv Wolfman, a writer on Teen Titans, who proposed a storyline called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Now, Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, he had to do a lot of research for, which as a result meant that the crisis was primed for DC. Well, National Comics' 50th anniversary was DC by this point, but the anniversary of the company. 
Now, Crisis on Infinite Earths is a fantastic story. It's one of the best comic book crossovers I think I've ever read. It is a seminal piece of work. It is quite clearly a love letter to the entire DC universe. Pretty much every character that DC owned at that point makes an appearance in it, as well as the numerous new characters who were introduced throughout it. And it is, yeah, it's a fantastic piece of work. It took Marv Wolfman over a year to write and a year and plus to research to do all the uh, all the necessary preparation to use all these characters. Now, what Crisis on Infinite Earths does is it introduces a force called the, well, a being known as the Anti-Monitor. The Anti-Monitor is a being from an antimatter universe. And it's explained that at the Big Bang, there was a positive matter universe and an antimatter universe. The antimatter is able to eradicate normal matter. The positive matter universe fractured and became a multiverse. The antimatter universe didn't. As a result, the being known as the Antimonitor is incredibly powerful. And he starts unleashing antimatter waves that wipe out whole realities. Um, in one of the early issues of Christ on Infinite Earths, I believe the first issue, we see Earth 3 get destroyed. As I said, that was the version with the, the evil version of the Justice League, the crime syndicate, they're called. And Earth 3 is completely obliterated by an antimatter wave. Now, what Crisis on Infinite Earths does is it sees a, a lot of superheroes team up to try and stop the Anti-Monitor. It takes them a while before they find out the Anti-Monitor is the actual threat. Um, and five Earths, as a result of this story, are combined into one. Um, and they're given a shared history. And those uh, worlds are Earth-1, which is the home of the, the main DC heroes. Earth 2, which is the home of the 1940s heroes. Earth X, which is the world where World War II is still ongoing and is populated by a group of heroes known as the Freedom Fighters, led by a literal personification of Uncle Sam. Um, it's a, a very interesting story. I believe a lot of the characters were... I believe they were public domain heroes. Um, who had been sort of snapped up by DC or, or the companies had gone bust or something like that. There was Earth S, which is the home of the Shazam family of characters, uh, as they're now known, but at the time were Captain Marvel and his associated characters from Fawcett Comics, which had recently been bought out by DC. And I believe it's called Earth C which is the home of the Charlton heroes. Uh, the Charlton heroes included Blue Beetle, Peacemaker, Captain Atom. Um, those were the heroes that became... They, again, had recently been bought out by DC, and they became the foundation for the Watchmen characters uh, that I mentioned in a previous episode. 
and as well some of them have had modern day adaptation i've spoken them in a couple of episodes now so regular listeners will be familiar with the concept of the charlton comics heroes now those five earths ended up on a, a merged prime earth and there were some inconsistencies um and there were some new characters introduced um for example the lone survivor of earth 3 was a baby version uh, of Alexander Luther. Um, this version of Alexander Luther is the son of Lex Luther and Lois Lane. Lex Luther being obviously a hero in this inverted mirror universe. Um, Alex grows up connected um, to the anti as he was ejected from it at the moment of its destruction. He has some sort of connection to the anti-monitor's powers and the antimatter powers. And the, there's also the introduction of a character called uh, Superboy Prime. Superboy Prime is essentially a alien who was raised on an Earth very much like our own. Um, I think the Prime Earth was literally meant to be modern-day Earth, as it was written. Um, and Superboy Prime is an alien who arrives and was raised as Clark Kent, named after the comic character. So in our in on the Prime world, Earth Prime, the um, the characters of the DC comics are comic book characters, as they are in our real world. And so Superboy Prime knew who all these characters were, but and he for somehow became the last last survivor of Earth Prime just before it was destroyed. It's not really explained how he survived. It's kind of explained in a tie-in. He does kind of drop into the main narrative of Crisis. Um, now, the combination of the Five Earths happens after a battle with the Anti-Monitor at the dawn of time. Um, featuring all the superhumans, all the, all the heroes and villains of all five worlds. And it's a fantastically epic battle. And it's a result of like a new Big Bang that this merged Earth exists. And after the Earth has merged, we see that there is now this shared history where, for example, the Freedom Fighters and the Justice Society were both active during World War II. Um, Superman never existed during World War II, and uh, him, Batman, and Wonder Woman have only been uh, heroes in the modern day, for example. It was uh, a, a nice way of trying to tie continuity together and have it so that everything could be canon, but now it all takes place in the one place. Um, so they battle the Anti-Monitor, and in a final battle, he takes the might, the combined might of several dozen heroes to vanquish. Um, he survives multiple strong attacks. Um, but in the end, he is vanquished. And most... There are some casualties in the, the battles of Crisis on Infinite Earth, notably Barry Allen, uh, the Flash, who dies in issue 8, I believe, and Supergirl, who dies in issue six. I might have that the wrong way around, actually. It might be Flash that dies in six and Supergirl that dies in eight. But either way, those are the two main issues of the 12-issue series where there's a, a major death. Um, they're not the only deaths. There are several others. Uh, Aqua Girl dies, for example. Um, 
a character called Cole from the um, the New Teen Titans, or is it the Outsiders? One of the two. Um, the Earth Two versions of Robin and Huntress both die. Um, believe a version of Wonder Woman dies right towards the end as well, and then there's the Earth Two version survives. Um. And then the Earth-1 version is kind of reborn on the new world. But now, as the final result of the battle, the Anti-Monitor is vanquished. And Alexander Luther, the aged Superman of Earth-2, along with his wife Lois, and Superboy Prime are kind of trapped outside of time, um, outside of the new Earth. And they end up walking through a doorway that Alex creates for them and to go into sort of a, a paradise, like a final rest. And that's important because we'll come back to that later on. But for the most part, Crisis on Infinite Earth has did what it set out to do. It streamlined the continuity to a point. Um, some of this would be invalidated by later work. Uh, I'm not going to lie, um, but I'll, I'll touch on that briefly, shortly. Um, and, you know, it kind of rebooted continuity to a certain extent. Um, you know, a lot of the heroes now got new origins. There was the uh, seminal um, Batman Year One, written by Frank Miller, Um sort of establishing Batman's new origin in this world. George Perez worked on the new Wonder Woman, and John Byrne left Marvel and joined DC to write Man of Steel, um, which was a very, very popular limited series, sort of explaining Superman's new origins on this Earth. So I think Crisis did set out what it was meant to, what it originally intended to do, and as I said, the story is absolutely phenomenal. It is a love letter to everything DC have and ever will make. And I think in terms of enormous sci-fi spectacle, it takes a lot of beating. Um, as, a, as a comic book story, I I think there's very few stories that equal it in terms of just sheer absolute stakes. Um, so yeah, I, I heartily recommend it um, to anyone who hasn't read it. Um, maybe learn a bit about some of the characters first, if you can, or at least have a, a ground knowledge of some of the major DC heroes. But I think for the most part, the, the comic also does a brilliant job of introducing you to characters that you may not have heard of. So it's not necessary. So, so far, so good. Where's the where's the clash of hope and cynicism, you may say? Um, well, that comes with what happened next. So I think to truly understand um, where I'm coming from with the term of the, the battle of hope and cynicism at DC, I think it's important to understand what comes in the aftermath of Crisis. Now, Crisis on Infinite Earths itself was 
a bleak story. There was a lot of destruction in it. However, it ends on a very hopeful note. Um, you know, the original Superman is given, you know, the Superman of Earth 2 is given a happy ending with Lois Lane. Um, the heroes are given a brand new world. And continuity is tighter and there's a sense of new beginning. Now, that's great in a sense. But one thing that Crisis on Infinite Earths actually signified as well in a, a more meta sense was the end of the Bronze Age of comics. Now, I spoke about this briefly in a previous episode, um, but essentially the, the Golden Age is generally considered to be the, the late 30s through to sort of the mid-50s. The Silver Age is sort of the mid-50s through to the early 70s, where superheroes sort of came back into the popular zeitgeist. That's where the Marvel heroes tended to originate. Golden Age was more the DC heroes, Captain Marvel, things like that. And then the uh, Bronze Age is generally considered to be when you got more of the relaxing of the comic code. You got things, uh, the introduction of sort of darker heroes like Blade and Ghost Rider. Um, when you started to get more grounded and gritty characters and storylines. And yeah the the crisis on infinite earth is very much a signifier of the end of the bronze age of comics now what came after the bronze age is generally considered to be the dark age there was a joke going around um on twitter not too long ago that dc comics only ever seems to remember that it's published three stories those three stories are watchmen the dark knight returns and the killing joke now, I've spoken to some degree in previous episodes about all three of these. Um, Killing Joke is a story by Alan Moore set within the canon of the Batman storyline of the Batman comics where Joker tries to make Commissioner Gordon go mad um, and become as bad as him by subjecting him to mental torture, including... Um, the paralyzation and um, sexual molestation of his daughter, Barbara Gordon, uh, otherwise known as the hero Batgirl. And that one is, is still in canon with the DC Universe. Um, Alan Moore has expressed some regret at writing it in uh, more recent years. Um but for better or worse, it's still a very respected Joker storyline. Watchmen was also by Alan Moore. Watchmen is a deconstruction of the superhero genre using original characters heavily based and influenced on the Charlton heroes who it was originally going to use. Set in an alternate world, an alternate version of the 1980s um, on the brink of nuclear war. <laughs> And Watchmen is a good story. I, I I do like Watchmen. DC did kind of screw Alan Moore over on it. Um, and I think he has every right to be pissed at them about it. And, you know, it's not... It, it, it's, it has its faults. And I think there's some parts of it maybe that have not aged as well as they could. Um, 
and I don't think it's quite as relevant in modern comic circles as a lot of people tend to hold it up. But it is still a very, very good story and one I would heartily recommend. It's probably Alan Moore's best work. And probably definitely his best work within the superhero genre. Although he has done other great superhero comics. Um, again, he seems to have expressed some regret on writing Watchmen. His attempts with the image character of uh, Supreme, I believe it was. Um, was to try and do a more traditional golden age take on a, a superhero story. Um, and it's something he he himself seems to have had a lot more fun with. The final story, Dark Knight Returns, is one of those that seems to get a lot of things misattributed to it. Um, Zack Snyder said it claimed it was a huge source for his interpretation of Batman in the um, DC Extended Universe of films. Um, you know, that was why he said his version of Batman was a, a murderer and used guns, despite the fact that in the actual book the dark knight returns um batman swears off both of those things quite explicitly um uh, the story features an older bruce wayne sort of coming out of retirement as batman um to a sort of depressing capitalist future um, the original story is still very good, still holds up very well. The sequels are not great by any metric. Um, yeah, definitely not great at all. Um, Frank Miller, I've, I've said before, he, he used to write good comics, but sort of lost lost how to do that over the years and I'm not sure what it was some people blame his descent on his work with Sin City um, personally I think things like The Dark Knight Returns 2 uh, which is The Dark Knight Strikes Again sort of show that he was losing his edge way before Sin City um, but Dark Knight Returns itself is, is still pretty good, it does hold up um, the thing is as you may have gathered, um, two of these, Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, are both Elseworlds stories. They don't take place in the main comics of the DC Universe. And they're also quite cynical deconstructions of the superhero genre. Killing Joke itself is cynical as well, but it's not, uh, not necessarily a deconstruction, as Batman is proven right that... Um, Commissioner Gordon won't fall and he won't be as bad as Joker so what happened as a result of that these, these were all published uh, in the late 80s sort of off the back of Crisis on Infinite Earths in fact Watchmen started being published 1986 so pretty much the month that Crisis on Infinite Earths finished Watchmen started So what happens is the the effects of those comics and the popularity of those comics, and, and you know, Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen were two of the earliest graphic novels that got released um, sort of into direct market sellers, into to bookstores, which was one of the things that kept them going in America um, and helped their popularity. Um, 
before then comic books were pretty much sold exclusively in comic shops. Um, so what this did was create an impression on on the medium of comics and the, the public consciousness, as well as a, a sort of seeping into the creators working on the comics that these sort of dark storylines were selling. Um, and so throughout the, the rest of the late eighties and into the early nineties, DC did several other big major dark storylines, which were trying to, to deconstruct their heroes and then build them back up again. Um, as a result of crisis um, most prominent examples would be uh, Batman Nightfall the death of Superman and Emerald Twilight now uh, Batman Nightfall is a story that's been referenced in a couple of films including most most prominently The Dark Knight Rises by Christopher Nolan it's basically the introduction of the character Bane who breaks Batman's back um, in their first encounter. Batman has to deputise a character called Azrael to act in his stead as Batman. Azrael eventually goes to extremes that Bruce would not condone, such as, um, I think I believe he does actually kill someone while in the Batman suit leading to Batman having to, to reclaim the title of Batman from Azrael. It's not a bad story. It's a very long story, um, a very involved story. But it does what it's... It tells the story it's trying to tell very well, I think. Um, the death of Superman is the death and rebirth of Superman. Uh, it's four issues... Um, I believe there were four Superman titles at the time, so it's one issue of each for the death, the rebirth. The rebirth was two months each. Um, essentially, Superman is killed while fighting an alien monster called Doomsday. In after his funeral and in his absence, four other Supermen appear, um, including Superboy. Um, the cyborg Superman, um, Steel, who's a man in an armoured suit, and I believe the third one later took on the name Eradicator, but I've forgotten what he was called at the time. And the belief was that at first that any of them could be the actual Superman restored, um, however, Superman himself was later restored. Um, the cyborg Superman went evil during the storyline and destroyed Coast City. Coast City is the hometown of Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. Um, as a result, the, the loss of Coast City made Hal Jordan, um, go mad, um, with grief, um, and try to restore Coast City using the power of his Lantern Ring. The Guardians of the Universe, the governors of the Green Lantern Corps, forced him to stop this. And uh, in the storyline Emerald Twilight... Excuse my phone. Um, in the storyline Emerald Twilight, it saw the um, Hal Jordan 
kill other Green Lanterns and take their Lantern Rings to increase his power. Um, he was eventually replaced by another Green Lantern character called Kyle Rayner. Um, but essentially Hal Jordan, for several years, became a villain and took on the name Parallax. Parallax was then at the centre of a storyline called Zero Hour, which was for the 10th anniversary of Crisis, um, sort of another sort of soft reboot. It didn't drastically alter the continuity in the same way that uh, Crisis did, but it did touch on certain things, like, for example, in the original post-Crisis timeline, I don't think the um, the killer of Batman's parents was ever caught. As a result of Zero Hour, I believe he was. Um, so there was a slight change to continuity. And yeah, Parallax was revealed to sort of be behind that. With somewhat noble goals. Um, but the actual Zero Hour story is a bit of a mess. Um, the last issue is very, very good. The issues preceding it are... Not at all. Um, so yeah, there was this general sort of consensus that these heroes were getting darker. Um, but as I said, it reflected medium, the whole medium as a whole. Um, in the early 90s especially, um, we saw the foundation of Image Comics... Um, where off the back of their success with Marvel Comics, a lot of big-name artists, including uh, Jim Lee, who worked on X-Men, uh, Rob Liefeld, who worked on X-Force, um, Tom McFarlane, who worked on Spider-Man, and several others, um, founded the, co uh, the company Image Comics, hoping to sort of own their own characters and uh, their own companies as well. Um Jim Lee's Wildstorm characters are generally a bit of a mixed bag, um, but there's some interesting ideas in there that sprung out of it, such as the Authority, um, which again is a more kind of a deconstruction of the superhero narrative. Um, Todd McFarlane's Spawn comics um, has become, as a result, one of the longest-running sort of independent comics for a long, long time. Um, I mean, it's over well over 250 issues on Spawn now, and that's with numerous delays. Um, Rob Liefeld is an artist I'm not particularly fond of as an artist or a storyteller. Um, his own efforts at introducing characters were mixed and very muddled. His main characters were the, the superhero team Youngblood. Um, Youngblood themselves are not very good, but as I said, Rob Liefeld did work with... Uh, Alan Moore later on um, to introduce the character of Supreme and Glory and there was a, a, a crossover comic that they created together called um, what was it called? Judgment Day um, which was pretty decent um, and sort of created a whole new universe of characters just around the time that Rob Liefeld was actually breaking from Image Comics as its own thing now, the rise of these sort of younger, edgier heroes um, led to DC and Marvel sort of looking like the old guard. And a story in 1996 known as Kingdom Come, which is another 
very highly praised work um, under DC. Again, it's another Elseworlds story in that it doesn't take place within the main continuity of the DC universe. Um, but it features a future where over the years the Justice League have sort of disappeared and now they sort of come back as older characters to deal with this this rampant young generation of heroes who are almost callous and careless in how they act around other around citizens that like a lot of their results just leave swathes of destruction and death in their in their aftermath and kingdom come i i only read it for the first time uh, recently, I, w I will admit, um, it's one that had always been told to me as one of the best works that DC have ever done. I wasn't a huge fan of it, which is a controversial status in itself. Um, the artwork is beautiful. The artwork is by Alex Ross, who is a painter. Um, I'm a very big fan of a series he did with Marvel called Marvels, um, which did a similar sort of idea, trying to retell the uh, you know, trying to look at the golden age of heroes and how important they were. But in Marvel's case, it actually was set in those that time period. Um, Mark Wade, the writer of Kingdom Come, uh, again, I'm, I'm a big fan of his work usually. Um, he was trying to sort of show that the golden age superheroics weren't necessarily a bad thing. Um and, you know, as he's dealing with these, you see the return of Superman, Wonder Woman. Uh, Wonder Woman's golden armor that she wore in Wonder Woman 84 actually comes from Kingdom Come. Um, but yes, uh, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, a uh, load of other characters all eventually come back together to deal with this, this upstart new generation. And the new generation of heroes... Um, yeah, some of them are very clearly heavily inspired by some of the uh, the new heroes that were appearing in other companies. Um, one character in particular, Mangog, uh, Mangog or Magog, seems very very similar to um, the character of Cable, um, created by Rob Liefeld for Marvel Comics. So yeah, there's uh, it's it's not hard to see what Kingdom Come was trying to say, in that it's sort of saying there's nothing wrong with these these golden age heroes and that they can be hopeful and you know the the outlook of modern superheroics is more cynical, and I suppose that's where this this ongoing idea of hope and cynicism sort of started to collate. Um, Another series that kind of exemplifies it is a Superman story in sort of the early 2000s, uh, which is What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way, which was adapted into an animated film called Superman vs. the Elite. And in that we see a, a new group of heroes known as the Elite, led by uh, an upstart young hero, called Manchester Black um, who are sort of willing to do the things that Superman isn't and they sort of mock him for his sort of older principles 
Um, and it's a great Superman story because he does, by the end of it, prove that no, there is nothing funny about truth, justice, and the American way. It's a dated viewpoint, but it's a viewpoint that works because Superman has hope that humanity is always better and that a better way is always possible. And it's a very good story. I'm I'm a, a big fan of that one. The animated movie especially is a very good adaptation of the, the core themes of the story. And yeah, Superman does just prove that he is better, that his approach is can be better than Manchester's straight away. But where the idea of hope and cynicism first started to be expressed in the main comic universe of DC, I believe, is in the story Infinite Crisis. Infinite Crisis was created for the 20th anniversary of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it was explicitly dis created as a sequel to the original work. It involved a lot of setup um, across numerous events and miniseries, and even a crossover that preceded it the year before called Identity Crisis. Um, Identity Crisis itself is a deeply, deeply cynical story. I am not a fan of it. Um, it's written by author Brad Metzler, author of a number of thrillers, including The Tenth Justice. Um, Identity Crisis remains a controversial story. It was controversial even when it was released. It remains controversial to this day. Um, during the storyline, um, the character of Susan Dibney who is the wife of um, Justice League hero, the Elongated Man, is found murdered. As a result of her death, it is also revealed that back during the satellite era of DC's Justice League, um, which took place in roughly the, the late 80s, I believe, um, she was raped by the supervillain Dr. Light and his memory of the event was wiped by several members of the Justice League. And when Batman found them wiping his memory, they also wiped Batman's memory. <sighs> Needless to say, I am not a fan of Identity Crisis I'm not a fan of the treatment of Sue Dibney and how it was an afterthought almost to the story. Like her rape is never brought up within the context of the story except as the inciting incident for the mind wipe. Um, even her death is done as nothing more than to reveal the mind wipe and the retcon. And... I'm angry at it as someone who isn't even a fan of Sue Dibney, who wasn't even reading Justice League at, in the 80s during the satellite era. Um, 
but yeah, it's a a pretty disgusting story, and I'm not a fan of it. Um, but that was just sort of like one thing that became a prelude for Infinite Crisis. Um, there were others, such as um, Batman, as a result of finding out that that he'd had his mind tampered with, creating um, a security system called Brother Eye to spy on other superheroes. Brother Eye eventually weaponized members of the public, turning them into uh, One Man Army Corps, or OMAX. Um, the Spectre, who is a character who is known as... Um, who is literally a personification of the Angel of Vengeance, um, is sent against the Wizard of Shazam fame and shatters the Rock of Eternity, which is the source of most of the magic in the DC Universe. Um, most of the world's supervillains start banding together as a new secret society, uh, apparently led by Lex Luthor. And in perhaps one of the more cynical uh, countdown stories leading into... Um, Leading into Infinite Crisis, uh, Maxwell Lord, a former ally um, of the Justice League, again, during the Satellite Era, I believe, or in a similar sort of era, um, is revealed to have turned villainous, executes um, Ted Cord, the Blue Beetle, and is then himself killed by Wonder Woman uh, and the video of that is then broadcast around the world and making the public fearful of Wonder Woman and numerous other heroes. All of this culminates in the countdown stories with the destruction of the JLA satellite and the supposed death of the Martian Manhunter. Now, the actual inf Infinite Crisis story itself is pretty good. Um, the factors and in in the way it works as a sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths is it's revealed that the Earth 2 Superman, the Earth 2 Lois Lane, Alexandra... Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime have escaped their sort of pandimensional prison where they were in exile. The reason they have escaped is because Lois is dying. Superman obviously wants to find a way to save his wife and he is being manipulated by Luther who is uh, Alexander Luther, who is posing as Lex Luthor and is behind the secret society. And he is manipulating Superman to use him um, for his power. The reason being, Alexander wants to restore the multiverse. And 
Earth 2 Superman, being the original Superman, the original superhero, is necessary for that. The way he's manipulating Superman is by saying that the darkness of the current DC Universe, the darkness that has infected this world, is what's killing Lois. And that is a very, very interesting concept. The idea is that the, the world has gone darker since the crisis. And it was it was true. It had. Um, and the story puts the blame for that squarely on the heroes. It, it's their fault that the world is darker. However, as Batman says in a confrontation with Earth 2 Superman... Is everything worse? And the example he uses is Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson, obviously known as Robin. In Earth 2, Robin, even as a, an adult man, was Dick Grayson was still Robin. In the main DC Comics universe, Dick Grayson has left the role of Robin behind him and struck out as a hero on his own right, known as Nightwing. And as Nightwing, he has gone on to found the Teen Titans, and become a very, very respected member of the superhero community in the DC Universe. And Batman, in issue two of Infinite Crisis, manages to get Superman to agree that Dick is better in this new world. Um, so yeah, despite the bad things that have happened, despite things like Emerald Twilight, some things are better. And they shouldn't be... They shouldn't need to be punished for that. The story itself does... try and create a hopeful message. As I said, it does try to suggest that the world has gone darker and that there's a different way of addressing things, a more hopeful way of addressing things. The only problem is the story itself, um, written by Jeff Johns, who later went on to become president of DC Comics, the story itself features a lot of gratuitous violence and death. And it's hard to argue that the world is trying to be more hopeful when, for example, a character like the Psycho Pirate, who was a, a prominent survivor of the original Crisis, who was one of the few people to survive the original Crisis on Infinite Earths with all of his memories of it, is executed by uh, the character of Black Adam, essentially ripping his hand through his head. It's hard for Superboy Prime to argue that he's a better version of Superboy while battling Connor Kent and the Titans when he kills several Titan members in the battle. Uh, 
uh, a YouTuber I follow, Linkara, suggested the the problem he thinks with Jeff Johns's work, and I have to agree with him, which is that nostalgia itself can be toxic. Not that it is toxic, but that it can be toxic. Our nostalgia for what came before, um, we can forget and excuse the bad um, of what we had before because we want the good we remember. And we focus on the bad we have now and ignore the good. You do kind of see this in some respects of fandom in, in general. Um, one of my favourite examples of this is how displeasure with uh, the amazing Spider-Man and um, Marvel Spider-Man films among certain sectors of the Spider-Man fanbase led to a generic appreciation for the the Raimi Spider-Man films. Now, the Raimi Spider-Man films are not bad by any metric, but they're not all good either. Spider-Man 3 is heavily flawed and had a mixed reception even upon its launch. Um, some elements of the character of Peter Parker in those films, played by Tobey Maguire, have not aged very, very well at all. Um, in fact... Some of Peter Parker's behaviours in those films when watched through a modern lens are very, very incel-like. And there's a sort of new nostalgia for them that's sprung up in that, no, no, what we have now is terrible and what we had then was better, despite the fact that what we had then wasn't all that great. And while what we have now may not be great, there's definitely good things there that are being overlooked. For example, we're getting to see Spider-Man interact with the Avengers, for example. Um, and Jeff Johns himself, in his writing, seems very um, prone to this level of thinking. He's wishing for the good that existed in DC before while also uh, while also using a lot of the story tropes that he's decrying like the graphic violence yeah it's another good example of the toxic nostalgia I think is the, the Star Wars prequels um I'll, in the wake of the the new sequel movies and some of the ire that they seem to have attracted a lot of people have taken on a new appreciation for the prequels but some of it is looking at nostalgia because well at least they're better than the sequels despite the fact that the prequel trilogy of star wars was not particularly well received at the time either but yeah the villains behind Infinite Crisis definitely exemplify this toxic mass, uh, toxic nostalgia, um, especially Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime. And it's hard to... I, I do think the story falls flat whenever it tries to criticise the, criticize the darkness that the DC Universe has come to embody 
while also reveling in that violent content in telling its story. Um, Infinite Crisis itself isn't terrible as a story. Um, Superman and Lois of Earth 2 both die throughout the story, uh, as does Alexander Luther. Um, the multiverse is restored all into 52 Earths, but that isn't revealed until at least a year later, after the weekly comic 52. And it's not... It's not terrible, I think is the best way to look at it. As a follow-up to Crisis on Infinite Earths, it's nowhere near the majesty of the former book. Um, but for what it is as a modern comic book story, as a big-budget popcorn flick uh, in comic book form, it works very well. But I don't think it's great. There are definitely good moments in it. But it's not great. So. What happened after that? How did it carry on? Infinite Crisis finished in 2006. Um, the DC Universe carried on. Telling the stories. On the back of the new. Um, the new status quo. That had been created. Uh, as I said there was a weekly comic 52. Um, which was very, very successful, uh, focused on a lot of minor characters um, and did a brilliant job. Um, there was a, a one-year-later um, event where a lot of the characters, uh, like 52, kind of told the story of that year, um, but it was a year, essentially, where Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman weren't really active. Um so you had uh, the biggest heroes of the DC Universe weren't around, essentially. Uh, one year later was them returning. Um, and, you know, there were some, some good stories in there, some terrible stories, um, as is par for the course with superhero comics. Um there was the rebirth of Green Lantern, um, which was engineered by Jeff Johns. He wanted to bring back Hal Jordan and kind of uh, redeem him for the events of Emerald Twilight. Um, and Jeff Johns' Black Lightning, uh, Black Lightning, Green Lantern work, sorry, is very, very good. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. He did some very interesting ideas. Um, kind of based off of like throwaway lines in an old Alan Moore Green Lantern comic book, which Alan Moore had some choice words about, but uh, yeah, it built up the mythology of that aspect of the universe um, by fracturing the uh, emotional spectrum into different coloured lights for different emotions. Um sort of giving Parallax uh, an origin as, like, the, the embodiment of fear um, in the Sinestro Corps War, for example. Um, Grant Morrison wrote Final Crisis, 
which I believe came out in 2009, sort of designed as like the last Crisis storyline, had very little to do with Infinite or Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, but um, was essentially just a giant cohesive storyline for the universe. Um, Jeff Johns then did his own big event comic off the back of Green Lantern and the return of the Flash, which he'd done in uh, Flash Rebirth, uh, called Blackest Night, which is essentially a very, very great horror comic um, with Black Lantern rings reanimating deceased heroes. Falls prey to a lot of the issues that Infinite Crisis does in that it's features quite wholesale death and destruction while trying to say that something better is possible. Not quite in the same way as Infinite Crisis, but um, saying that sort of the, the returns and the rebirths of some of these deceased heroes um, is seen as more hopeful while at the same time killing a whole load of characters off, some of which do not return by the end of the series. So despite several dead characters coming back to life at the end, there are numerous characters who die in the storyline and stay dead, um, including um, Tempest, who was the original Aqualad, um, and several others. But again, it does... Like Infinite Crisis, it's a comic book version of a popcorn flick, and it's a pretty good story. I think the the Black Lanterns work as kind of an interesting take on zombies, in that they focus on emotions. And unlike most comic events, the, the tie-ins for it were generally all very, very good. Black Lightning is one of the few comic events where I have read every tie-in, and they're all pretty good. Um generally quite character focused but the big thing that came next was also from jeff johns and that was flashpoint now flashpoint again starts as a spins off from the flash um stories that he was writing at the time but it became responsible for the next big reboot the first big true reboot of their continuity that dc had done since crisis on infinite earths um flashpoint is essentially a story where flash goes back in time to prevent his mother's death at the hands of his villain zoom um which is a, was a recent addition to the flash canon um, and became a, a prominent thing within the Flash television series on the CW. Um, however, this changes the world because Flash's inexperience with time travel sort of creates like a, a time shockwave that alters numerous other events, such as uh, Superman's pod landing not in rural Kansas, but in the middle of Metropolis and killing 30,000 people in sort of like a small explosion. Um, or it being Bruce Wayne who is killed alongside, um, who is killed instead of Thomas and Martha, um, leading to Martha becoming the Joker and Thomas Wayne becoming Batman. Um, 
and yeah, the world is a, a, a very much a bleak alternate take on the world. Um, Wonder Woman and Aquaman are essentially fighting a war between Atlantis and Themyscira, which looks like it will lead to the end of the planet. Um, and it's only five issues, and so the story moves at a very, very brisk pace. And as a result of it, almost as an addendum, is is how it reads. The the worlds of the main DC universe, the DC Vertigo universe, which was like their creator-owned stuff. Uh, so Grant Morrison's Animal Man, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, uh, which is currently being adapted for audio by Audible. Um, and Jim Lee's Wildstorm universe, which had recently been bought by DC. So that's the, the characters of the Authority. Um, we're all kind of merged together. And I think Milestorm is a milestone is in there as well, which is the the world that included the character of Static Shock, um, known for his animated series in the early two thousands, and several other characters in there as well, uh, mainly black uh, black superheroes created by black creators, um, most of whom have yet to really reappear within the DC universe, unfortunately, despite the fact that some of them would be absolutely amazing to see. Like, for example, the character of Icon, who is essentially Superman, but has been on Earth for several hundred years and is a former slave, because obviously he's black. So he is a former slave who has the powers of Superman. And it's like, on paper, that character just sounds interesting, and I wish DC would do more with them. I'm assuming there's some rights issues involved. I know one of the big creators of Milestorm, Milestone, sorry, um, died. So I wonder if that's part of it. But either way, this kind of restructured the DC universe slightly and led to a publishing initiative called The New 52, now, the New 52 became problematic for a number of reasons. There were a lot of accusations of uh, sexism in its very early titles, um, both in in-universe and out-of-universe, um, in the comic book universe in terms of the depictions of several characters. For example, the character of Starfire from the Teen Titans being drawn in essentially a see-through swimsuit and being openly promiscuous. Um, something that had not really been attributed to the character before and off the back of the the recently ended Teen Titans cartoon um, seemed especially jarring considering her portrayal and that and how popular that show had been. And then obviously out of universe, there were, I think, of the 52 titles that they announced, I think there were only two female creators working uh, on those comics so yeah there were there was a lot of issues with the new 52 but one of the more jarring things about it became for fans especially was trying to work out this now truncated five-year timeline of the dc comics and how how many of the existing continuity of stories 
were part of this were part of this new universe um for example it seemed that you know despite only being active for somewhere between 5 and 10 years batman had still had four robins and dick grayson as well as jason todd had both grown into young men while tim drake and damian were both sort of both still more on the younger side um a lot of the titan characters had lost their children and families um superman and lois were no longer married for example um and yet things like the green lantern emotional spectrum was still a thing and i think a lot of the changes to a lot of the reason why a lot of the batman and green lantern stuff was kept is that they had generally been some of dc's best sellers prior to the new 52 in terms of generating interest and generating sales the new 52 worked um but it did alienate a lot of ongoing a lot of older fans and did create a lot of issues in universe as well um some of it due to just poor editorial choices um some of it is just bad storytelling um now that was in 2011 the dc the new 52 labeling eventually kind of was removed from those books and elements of sort of the old continuity sort of started to seep in um the new 52 version of superman was killed off and replaced by the post-crisis version who had somehow managed to make his way into the universe along with his infant son and his wife lois lane um and somehow they'd been they transitioned from post crisis um to this new world um but what really ended the idea of the new 52 was another jeff johns written book and this was a single book it was only 99 cents i believe um, for roughly a 70 page story called DC Rebirth now DC Rebirth was a one shot comic and it was it featured Wally West now Wally West is the original Kid Flash and after Crisis on Infinite Earths where Barry Allen died um, Wally West took over as the Flash so for a whole generation of people, he was the Flash. And he sort of remained that way. Even when Barry Allen came back 20 years after, 28 years after the original Crisis. In Final Crisis. So yeah, Wally West comes back. And everyone has forgotten about him he tries to connect with his wife he tries to connect with his cousin he tries to connect with a whole load of other friends and can't break through to any of them until he is sort of saved from being erased from the timeline by barry allen um and it felt to readers more hopeful like 
you know, the Wally West was a character that fans had been asking to see for pretty much the past five years. Um, one of a number of characters who had been notably absent from the New 52 um, that people had been wanting to see and, and crying for the return of. Um, so along with the return of the, the, the post-crisis Superman, it sort of felt like, to readers at least, the more cynical New 52 was going. And that Rebirth might be something more hopeful. The problem is... Further elements in the story of DC Rebirth affected that idea as well. For example, one of the subplots in introducing DC Rebirth was the idea of... Um, uh, Johnny Thunder of the Justice Society, um, sort of remembering the Justice Society. But this was now a world, the New 52 Earth, was a world where the Justice Society had never existed. So it was suggesting that they might be returning. Uh, there was a new version of Saturn Girl from the Legion of Superheroes, the 30th century version. Um, but she was different to the version of the legion that the new 52 had already depicted um and seemed more similar to the classic um version of the legion of superheroes so again suggesting that they might return which was another sort of going back to the old old days but at the same time pandora who had been built up as a important character in the new 52 she appeared in the final issue of flashpoint as well as the first issue of every one of the 52 new 52 titles and she'd been built up as sort of the architect of this new universe um saying it was to make the universe stronger for something she was killed off in a page of DC Rebirth, um, blasted apart by Blue Energy um, at the hands of a being that she said was responsible for the changes to the New 52, sort of confusing the continuity a bit um, and sort of killing her off before we got any real sort of answer or idea as to who she was and what she was trying to do and then the final pages of rebirth sort of suggested that someone had taken 10 years of all these heroes lives you know 10 years of their history had been taken as well as the the loss of the justice society and the legion of superheroes and it was very heavily implied in the final page when Batman finds a smiley face badge with a blood stain on, um, which most fans would recognise immediately as the comedian's badge from Watchmen, that Dr. Manhattan had been responsible for the erasing of those ten years in the DC Universe. So, essentially... DC had brought the Watchmen into mainstream continuity 
and was now building Dr. Manhattan up as a villain. So DC Rebirth seemed to be setting up Wally West as a prominent opponent for Dr. Manhattan as well. But within a few years, that was all undone as well, as we had the storyline Heroes, Heroes in Crisis. Heroes in Crisis caught up with Wally West after finding out that he'd lost his children and finally remembering them after losing them in the transition from the post-crisis to the new 52 universe. <sighs> Heroes in Crisis is ostensibly a story about mental illness and addressing mental illness in superheroes. However, it is terrible. It is written really poorly by Tom King. It offers no good answers. It builds up to a mystery that never pays off. And the story itself was very clearly changed while it was being written. Um, which was apparent to anyone at the time because the series suddenly went from a seven-issue limited series to a nine-issue limited series. And the solicitations, uh, which are sort of descriptions of the comic that are given months in advance, didn't match up with what the final issues were actually were. And what Heroes in Crisis does is it makes Wally West have a breakdown, essentially, that makes him responsible for the deaths of numerous heroes um, at a place called Sanctuary, where these heroes are seeking mental help. And it's, as I said, absolutely terrible, terrible story. Um, and it felt like a huge undoing of what Rebirth had tried to set up. Because it reduced Wally West to nothing essentially but the one of the worst things it did was it presented flashbacks to wally returning in dc rebirth as well as his meetings with other characters such as the other titans members and suggested that he'd been missing his children all along and that in universe barry and the other heroes had greeted him with saying that he's the return of hope None of which was in the comics themselves. He had only just remembered his children existed. He hadn't been missing them the entire past three years. It was terribly, terribly written. and Or rewritten, as it should be. And... I think Tom King even suggested that the characters he used to tell the story were sort of suggested to him by editorial, as in he had a story to tell and slotted these characters in. But again, it was trying to bring the idea of the, the return of hope into the universe, but in a story that essentially 
pissed all over that idea by reducing Wally West to a murderer because he's responsible for accidental deaths but due to time travel shenanigans because the flashes can run fast enough to break the time barrier due to time travel shenanigans he essentially plans the murder he, he makes it look like a murder scene <sighs> yeah I didn't like Heroes in Crisis and it meant that Wally was essentially off the table for what became the big Watchmen conclusion which was the series Doomsday Clock now Doomsday Clock again was written by Jeff Johns it started being published I want to say late 2017, but was hit with numerous delays. It was originally going to be a bi-monthly comic book, so 12 issues it was going to take a while to come out anyway. Um, but the delays just extended that again and again and again. And I think it finished after Heroes in Crisis did. Now, Jeff Johns had other responsibilities for DC at the time. Um, he was working in their film division. Um, you know, around this time he would have been working on, you know, helping finalise shooting scripts and oversee reshoots for things like Wonder Woman 84. Um, but... Yeah, Doomsday Clock. I want to start by saying Doomsday Clock I don't think is a bad story. I don't think it's the equal to Watchmen, but in terms of a sequel to Watchmen, it's very, very good. It's a very good attempt. I have heard the Watchmen TV series is better as a sequel, um, but I haven't actually watched that yet. But I can believe it because a TV series does tend to have a bit more room to breathe than, you know, 20 odd pages per issue of comic storyline. An hour of television gives you a lot more room to actually tell a story. But the sequel itself is a good one. It suggests that, yes, Dr. Manhattan did something to the DC universe that effectively took 10 years away, that he was responsible for removing the Justice Society from time by essentially stopping Alan Scott reaching for the lantern that turned him into the Green Lantern. Um, and it was because he found that the, the DC universe was essentially able to adapt to change like, as he observed it, he saw Superman originate in the 30s and then originate in the 60s and then originate in the 70s to as a result of the, the sliding timescale of superhero comics where all of the events of the comics are generally accepted to have happened within the last, well, 5 to 20 years. Depending on which universe you're talking about. 
no matter how long ago in real time the comics actually started. Unless the comic series is explicitly stated as being, you know, taking place according to real time. So yeah, Doomsday Clock is a very good series. I would recommend it to a lot of people. Um, especially if you're a fan of Watchmen, I do think it works very well as a sequel to it. In that it tries to follow a lot of the similar storytelling styles of the original Watchmen graphic novel. Um, for example... Um, one of the issues of the original graphic novel sees uh, Dr. Manhattan telling things from his own perspective, and his own perspective is all of time happening at once. And there's an issue of Doomsday Clock, which follows that same approach, where Dr. Manhattan is telling why he got involved with toying with the, the DC universe, as he describes it, a metaverse because he found that it responded to his changes and the response always seemed to center around Superman, um, which led to Dr. Manhattan trying to understand Superman as a character, which is a brilliant, brilliant idea. Um, and I do think, you know, the, the, the fan theory was that Dr. Manhattan would be made to be a villain off of the back of Rebirth, and I don't think that happens in Doomsday Clock. I, I do think Dr. Manhattan is still a very muddled hero in that he is somewhat still aloof and away and separate from humanity. He's not a straight-up superhero in the same way as, like, Superman. But the contrasting these two beings of phenomenal power with their different views on humanity, I think works very, very well in the story. Um, it does do some things that try and make the DC universe a bit more like the more cynical world of Watchmen. For example, there's a lot of um, national, like state sponsored superhero teams. There's the idea of the Superman theory, uh, which is that uh, superhumans are sort of government-created, which seems very similar to a, an idea that was in the Ultimate Marvel series in the 2000s as well. Um, sort of as a way to streamline a lot of the Avengers and Marvel characters by saying they were attempts to replicate the Super Soldier Serum. I think for better and worse, though... Doomsday Clock does sort of impart some new some new hope in a way onto the DC universe, despite the cynical nature of its storytelling. I do think it's probably one of Jeff Johns's better books. Um, Jeff Johns, as you may have gathered from this video, is a creator I I struggle with. I think he has some tremendous ideas but his tendency to cause large sweeping retcons and the sort of the view he has of you know the sort of toxic nostalgic view he has of certain stories I can find quite jarring 
Um, so while with stories like Infinite Crisis or Flashpoint or Blackest Night, I can point to things that I dislike. Um, as much as I do like some of those stories, Blackest Night especially, I, I do very much enjoy. Um, but as much as I can point fault at some issues with his storytelling, I will say Doomsday Clock is probably his best work, despite also featuring some of those issues that affect him. The problem is Marvel then seems to have taken the approach that... Um, that Doomsday Clock was out of canon. Originally, when it was being written, it was... The, the idea of the metaverse, what it would change the... Each time the metaverse itself changed, a new universe would be created off of it. And so that was explaining the multiverse through the metaverse. Um, and why, again, Superman was the key, kind of echoing back to Infinite Crisis. Um, so when the metaverse reacts to, um, when the metaverse reacts to Dr. Manhattan affecting Alan Scott and therefore the Justice Society, that change creates Earth 2 because now Superman originates much later. But the world where the Justice Society and Superman originated in the 30s is now Earth 2. And so on. And in the end of the series, Dr. Manhattan implies that the metaverse will continue to change. More universes will continue to be created. Which isn't a bad idea. And is a good way of kind of trying to tie it around Superman and explain why how the reboots don't invalidate anything even the new 52 um and you know a, a series called convergence had already tried to do that at the end of the new 52 where it kind of implied that all of these previous continuities were still existing somewhere out in the multiverse and all these Elseworld stories as well, things like Kingdom Come and Dark Knight Returns. Um, so yeah, I think Doomsday Clock does do a, a pretty decent job of trying to be a sequel to Watchmen to tie it into the DC universe to address their continuity, address... It does try and address the kind of hope and cynicism debate sort of in-universe, and it does seem to... While it takes a very cynical approach in its early issues, things are left on a, a hopeful ending. Um, but, as I said, originally when Doomsday Clock was starting to be published, it was like, this is the future, this is what we're going to be building towards. But due to its delays and the other storylines that gradually started being written around it, such as Heroes in Crisis, I think it kind of shifted so that now it's no longer... Um, taking place within the main DC universe. So the metaverse is no longer the main DC universe. The DC universe that we're... We're following in the ongoing comics is now 
another multiverse or, or an Elseworld or something. It's hard to hard to narrow down. Um, and it wasn't helped with follow-up. Um, well, not even follow-up. Like, other stories that seem to have come about in recent years, such as Dark Metal, which introduced a dark multiverse and was built off of um, Scott Snyder's Batman stories. Um, by all accounts, a very, very good story, and it's recently had a sequel. Um, it was Dark Knight's Metal was the first one, and it's had a sequel called Dark Knight's Death Metal. Um, and then there's been a new series called Infinite Frontier, which is still ongoing, um, sort of suggesting that more changes are to come in the multiverse nature of DC. And again, some seem hopeful and some seem cynical. And, you know, the addition of a dark multiverse, all these dark worlds and alternate evil versions of Batman, especially, um, who is the the sort of more cynical nature of Batman makes it seem like, in some respects, he's the only character that DC can write. Um it's one reason why I think Batman has had the most adaptations of any other character. And there's definitely some, some positive ideas coming. Um, but a lot of it seems up in the air. And part of the reason a lot of it is up in the air is there was an overhaul of DC editorial as a result of the Warner Brothers media buyout by AT&T. And so a lot of that hasn't resolved and it's affected ongoing storylines such as Infinite Frontier and Future State and a lot of the plans that former um, president of DC and CEO Dan DiDio had in motion uh, with Future State Initiative. There was something they were building towards something called 5G seems to be gone. And so it's unclear where everything's going to go now as i was saying i do think the the idea of the hope and cynicism at the center of dc's debate does seem to have found its way into adaptations um for example, Wonder Woman is generally seen within the comics as one of the more hopeful and more loving characters within the series. Um, Wonder Woman, during Blackest Night, became um, a star sapphire. Star sapphires are literally like the embodiment of love. And it was said within that by the actual star sapphire, Carol Ferris, that the love that Wonder Woman has and is able to to generate outwards is phenomenal and unlike anything she had ever seen before. To the point that at the time Wonder Woman was turned by the Star Sapphire, she was a Black Lantern. Like, she was dead. She was reanimated by the Star Sapphire light and made her a Lantern of Love. And... For a long time, DC struggled with adapting Wonder Woman into the big screen. Um, you know, it's very noticeable she only had a film adaptation 
2017, despite the very successful series in the 70s with Linda Carter. So, you know, I, I, I made a joke uh, back in 2014, and it was sometime after Joss Whedon had written his script for Wonder Woman, which he claims was a masterpiece, but obviously um, Joss Whedon's own views are, on his own work are different to how good it was qualitatively. Um, but he stated that, you know, he was in the running to work on a Wonder Woman movie um, around about the same time that, you know, we'd had, you know, shortly after we'd had Superman Returns and Batman Begins. And it never, DC never went ahead with it. And DC were struggling to sort of find the right voice for Wonder Woman uh, off the back of Man of Steel. Meanwhile, Marvel were creating Guardians of the Galaxy, which was a team that no one outside of hardcore comic book fans knew like the actual guardians that are used in the film were created in 2006 off the back of the annihilation conquest miniseries um so that team of grouped rocket gamora drax didn't exist before then <laughs> it's a relatively new creation of obscure characters so it's like at the same time that dc was struggling to bring one of the five most popular comic book characters in existence um, and one of their flagship characters to the big screen Marvel was taking a risk on a talking tree and a rocket with a machine gun uh, a raccoon with a machine gun and I found that hilarious at the time and now it's kind of deeply tragic um and Wonder Woman's adaptations have been have been pretty good. I think the character of Diana is very solidly what she is in the DC universe. Um, you know, she's hopeful, compassionate. Um, I recently watched Wonder Woman 84 for the first time, and while it's not a perfect movie, the fact that she ends that film not with a drag-out fight, but with a conversation pleading with people is very, very Wonder Woman. That's something I'd expect to see in her comics. So, at least with what I've read of the character. And, you know, the, the same has been true with the... But, it, but it's also been true with the DC, EU and the Arrowverse as well, that the darker heroes seem to be the place they have to start. Um, you know, the Arrowverse started with Arrow, the gritty take on Arrow. Um, this was off the back of Green Arrow being a supporting character in the series Smallville, um, which I think was one reason why he was chosen. Um, but Smallville itself, you know, didn't really embrace the the more comic booky acts aspects of the Superman mythos, in part because Tom Welling said, you know, he didn't want to wear the cape and he didn't want to fly. But I think part of it was an editorial producer mandate as well. Um, and on one hand, it's interesting because you develop the character of Clark Kent before Superman. But, you know, Smallville lasted 10 seasons. After a while, you are just like, 
just let him put on the suit and be Superman. <sighs> and yeah, Arrow went through two years of being quite dark and gritty. I mean, the first two seasons of Arrow are very, very good. But it wasn't until the Flash spin-off that we got a level of comedy and levity to that universe. And it's definitely helped as the series have gone on, as the, the universe has expanded, that yes, we can have the, the gritty nature of a show like Arrow or Black Light Green Arrow or Black Lightning. But we can also have sort of the more fun, more light-hearted aspects of a show like Flash and Supergirl and Legends of Tomorrow, especially. Legends of Tomorrow is hilarious. Um, the DC Extended Universe as well. It was... Man of Steel was a very dark, bleak take on Superman that has less in common with the Superman character in the comics and more in common with Batman. Um... Like a like a super powered Batman, and then to the point where you get the the Justice League movie, and it's oh, old Batman, Super Batman, Girl Batman, Flash Batman, uh, Aqua Batman, you know, Cyborg Batman. They're not characters in their own right as much as they are darker versions of the characters they should be. So they don't feel like the Flash and Aquaman and Cyborg. They feel like, like I said, like versions of Batman. I do think it's changing. Um, I do think, I mean, Arrowverse did their own version of Crisis. Um, which seems to have, you know, they've been building to it for years and it's overhauled the universe um unfortunately they were then hit with the covid pandemics so that's affected filming of several things on e even the current series that are wrapping up in america now um were filmed during you know the second wave of covid restrictions in america so planned crossovers haven't happened and things like that so Things will change, I think, once once they can get back to a normal production schedule, things will change. But at the minute, there are definitely issues as a result of the pandemic that can't be resolved. But in general, the universe, I would say, is more hopeful than when it started as a result of what they did with Crisis. On the Arrowverse anyway, but then when you go to things like the DCEU, which is slowly getting better, um, you know, things like Suicide Squad, Birds of Prey and Shazam are definitely a step in the right direction of funnier films and more hopeful films. Um, but then you counter the counteract to that is you get something like Titans, which I have given up on. Because it is bleak. And I don't want to watch something that's so bleak. <sighs> I'm hoping... 
as DC continues, they can move away from this almost cyclical trend of things getting dark and then they having to bring some new ray of hope in. Um, and I hope it can change in their adaptations as well. I hope we can just have fun comics with fun characters. Because the characters of the DC Universe are incredible and have such potential. And, you know, part of the reason I think the Marvel films are doing very, very well at the minute is because they are embracing the more bizarre elements of the comic books. And I think DC has to do that in its adaptations as well to sort of show that, yes, yeah, some of this stuff is silly and you can laugh at it. It doesn't have to be grim and gritty all the time. Even the new Suicide Squad, which is somewhat gritty in its tone, still is ridiculously funny and features Star of the Conqueror, a bizarre alien starfish character who's, you know, a hundred metres tall, who I didn't think we'd get in film. And I'm so glad we have. Because he's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. That's my take. That's that's why I struggle with DC. This, this ongoing battle of hope and cynicism. And it's one of many reasons why I've struggled with their work despite liking some of it and I really hope it changes and I hope that the characters are allowed to be the characters that we love we can have you know, we can remember what made these characters great, and that is that they are... There is something corny about it, them. But it's something that's uniquely hopeful as well. You know, to echo the title of the a story earlier, what's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way? <laughs> Just briefly, before we uh, sign off for another episode, uh, I just thought I'd go through some of the, the quickfire geek talking points. I didn't do any last time with it being a, a Star Trek episode, uh, franchise special and with it already being quite a long episode. Um, so I just thought I'd give some quick opinions on some of the things that have been making the headlines in geek circles recently. Um, firstly, I, as well as seeing Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman 84, um, both of which I spoke about earlier, I have also seen Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, I thought it was very, very good. Uh, a very, very good origin story. Um, probably the best origin story that I think the Marvel Universe have done um, in terms of character and stakes and and villain especially um, definitely one of the best villains um, and yes I am including Iron Man in that 
I, I do think it was better than Iron Man. I think the character of Tony Stark is probably a better lead than Shang-Chi. Um, that's probably not in question. But, yeah, I do have issues with Iron Man as a film and how much it seems to be relied on as a template for later films such as Doctor Strange and Ant-Man. Um, so I do think Shang-Chi and trying to break away from that template has done a very, very, very good story. Um, and so yeah I'd, I'd heartily recommend it if you're able to attend the cinema wherever you're listening to this uh, safely um, then please go and go and watch it I think it's it's very very good <laughs> um, when I came out of Shang-Chi uh, the trailer for Hawkeye had dropped as well I think it looks very very fun um It'd be nice to see the character get some more development. I quite like that he's also wearing a hearing aid in one shot, um, suggesting that the character's deafness is going to be playing a role. Um, I also quite like the the Rogers musical that seems to be part of it, um, part of the narrative. I think that's a great piece of world building, um, sort of showing that this is a world with superheroes in and I, I love world building like that um, it's one of the reasons why I quite like Spider-Man Homecoming um, seeing the kids do things like um, you know shag marry kill but with Avengers <laughs> it's, a, it's a great touch a nice piece of world building uh, I'm getting definite diehard vibes from the Hawkeye trailer and I don't think that's a bad thing um Regarding the rest of Marvel at the minute, What If is ongoing. There's been several episodes since the last time I spoke about it. I have mixed feelings on a lot of them. Some I really like, some I don't. Um, some I like but have issues with. Um, so yeah, I think I'm probably going to start saving my thoughts for individual what if episodes until the next time I talk about the MCU um, which will probably be in the new year um, after after we've had Eternals and Spider-Man and Hawkeye and we have more of a more of an idea of where things are going um, but yeah they're, they're interesting ideas I yeah I, I'm still curious what's going on with that series I think there's there might be more um Beyond the Marvel Universe, though, um, well, actually, no, there's two, there's two uh, things that are still related to Marvel that have been doing the rounds. One is a, uh, a letter campaign uh, launched by the people behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki, uh, especially an author called BEJT, who is responsible for the timeline over there, which is one of the most very well researched and put together forms of the MCU timeline because they in they include all of the television series and shorts and everything and there's 11 of those television series and they're amazing um, but the, the letter writer campaign was to Kevin Feige basically asking him to keep Marvel television canon um, because if you were to take out those 11 series that were all originally advertised as part of the MCU and they're now in sort of a, a dubious canon state, you lose 80% of the available Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is a number that just astounded me when I read it. 
Um, the letter is very, very well put together. I'm, I'm supporting the campaign. I'm sharing it every time I see it on my Twitter feed. I highly suggest if anyone else uh, sees it or sees any discussion, if you like any of these shows, so Daredevil, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Punisher, um, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, um, even Runaways, Cloak and Dagger, any of those... If you like them and you would like to see the the Marvel Universe sort of keep them as canon and acknowledge them going forward, then please also get onto your Twitter and share them. Make sure people see them. Um, the director of Marvel's New Warriors pilot, which uh, was announced years ago, the pilot was filmed and never shown. Uh, along with the pilot for Marvel's Most Wanted, which was designed as a spin-off from Agents for S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, he went off on Twitter recently and revealed several things from it, including uh, costume tests, uh, bits of behind-the-scenes photography, and even a video of his kids watching a scene with uh, Milana Vaintrub's Squirrel Girl in a, a small stunt sequence. And I have to say, it looks charming as hell. <laughs> He was he, the reason that prompted him to go off was a, a, a reporter uh, or the Hollywood executive who had cancelled that he blamed responsible for the cancellation of New Warriors, um, going off and saying that no one, no one's making original content anymore. And he said, no, we were making this Marvel thing, and it was queer as hell, and it was shut down by one executive. And I have to say, what he published looks incredible it is picking up steam i've heard people comparing it to um deadpool in terms of the attention that's getting uh similar to the the leaked um previs of deadpool that was voiced by ryan reynolds leading to the deadpool movie so hopefully we get something from it even if it is just that the new warriors pilot drops onto disney plus i'd love to see that pilot and just see what it's like uh, I quite like the character of Squirrel Girl. I like the characters and team that they put together for this new Warriors show. So, yeah, I'm intrigued to see it. Beyond Marvel, um, like I was going to say, um, Lower Decks is continuing, and it's continuing to be fantastic. It's very, very funny. It's poking a lot of jokes at the meta of Star Trek. Um... And in some cases, even Star Trek fandom. But I do, I do think it's a masterclass of how to parody something without being insulting. Um, because so many of these jokes are coming from a place of just pure love. Um, someone did say, I feel sorry for the people who work on Star Trek Wiki who are having to take the, the nonsense that this show comes up with and try and fit it into the kind of serious world that the rest of Star Trek has established, but yeah, I heartily recommend it. If you have even a passing interest in Star Trek, you can still love it um, and still find it very, very funny. But if you understand a lot of these jokes as well, if you're if you're a Star Trek fan, it will hold so much more appeal to you. Um, but that's it's it's anyone can watch it. I think even casual fans could watch it. Even non-Star Trek fans could watch it and enjoy it. Um, the Matrix Resurrections trailer I thought was very very good I thought the use of Jefferson Airplane um, while predictable <laughs> was definitely welcome 
Uh, I do think that's a, a great song, and I love that it was calling back through the song and its references to Alice in Wonderland, as well as how it was used in the trailer, the references that we had to Alice in Wonderland in the original Matrix film. Um, I'm very curious to see how Neo and Trinity seem to be back. Um, all their shots in the trailer seem to be taking place within the Matrix itself. So if that's going to explain part of it, I'd be very curious. Um, yeah, I I'm interested to see what that has to offer. Um, so only a few months and we'll find out. And then finally, there's the unfortunate news that Final Space has been cancelled. Third season has just dropped on Netflix. Um, I think the the comedian responsible for it, Olan Rogers, said he had a plan for a six-season six run. So it's been cut short. He posted uh, quite a heartfelt video about it on Twitter. He obviously seems very, very cut up that it's been cut short. As I said, I did have my issues with Final Space's comedy, um, but the first season especially, I absolutely loved as a sci-fi story, despite the issues with its comedy. So I will be going back and watching season two and three at some point soon. Um, I don't know what the ending of season three is. I'm hoping it's not on a cliffhanger. Um, and I'm hoping that something comes of it um, because I think if this man has a story to tell and the story is worth telling then it should be told um, even if my, I myself am not a huge fan of it um, and the story that I did see of Final Space definitely has promise so yeah we'll see As always, thank you for listening. Um, all the social media links will be up in a minute. There's still the the link tree, which you should see um, where on whichever podcast app you're listening on. Um, I've still got something special planned for next month. I am still kind of undecided on whether it should be a daily. Uh, thing for October or if I'm going to just going to hit my normal release schedule which would be the 9th and the 23rd I think it possible I'm going to try to keep it to that rather than the daily um, just to keep things uniform if nothing else um, both episodes are going to be linked and there's going to be sort of a franchise special in, in some sense not Similar to what I did, what I've done before with Star Trek and Mass Effect, um, for reasons that I'll explain, they're they're going to be sort of a passion project for me. Um, and then in November, um, we'll be looking at episodes on the sixth and the twentieth. And then my final episode of the year, I'm hoping to be on December the fourth. Uh, I'm going to take a break for December the 18th and the two weeks after that, which will be New Year's Day, um, due to obviously working in retail and uh, how busy I'm going to be. I'm probably not going to have time for more episodes at that point. 
Um, I do have the episodes planned out. I'm going to start recording them now um, and getting all the work in for them so that I don't interrupt that schedule. Um, and then after that, I'll be back in the new year. So until next time, um, I'm not going to spoil what the next episode is uh, yet. Um because I want to explain as part of it why I've chosen that subject. So until next time, my friends and listeners, take care of yourselves, stay safe, wear a mask if you need to, get your vaccines if you're able, and yeah, just be safe out there. Look after yourselves, look after your mental health, your physical health, and take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, as always, for joining me here at Gardo Goes Geek. I have been your host, Gardo. If you would like to discuss the topic of this episode or any other episode with me, or would perhaps like to discuss topics that you might like me to cover in a future episode, then, as always, I invite you to reach out and contact me. I can be found at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. I look forward to any discussions that you wish to bring to me, and until next time, take care of yourselves. <laughs>